I am everywhere doing everything. And I have a tremendous amount of energy. And so, because I don't have the health problems, because I have not been doing the fruit and the sugar and the alcohol. Mm. And I don't do caffeine either. And I don't do perfumes and fragrances. That's another big bubble. Hello and welcome to Your Great with your host, Unique Hammond. I created this space for those seeking inspiration and tools along their healing path. One of the things that I learned on my own journey is that healing my body took healing my relationship with my body, with my emotional body, and my spiritual body as well. What does that mean? It means that I had a very disordered relationship with my body, how I viewed it, and how my worth was attached to how I looked. So I made a lot of very superficial choices in my life, all of which led me to ultimately battle with an autoimmune disorder that almost took me down. But in the process of it taking me down, it taught me incredible lessons and it firmly set me on my path to where I am now. So I am forever grateful to Crohn's disease because I don't think I would be who I am today without it. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. Today's guest, is Karen Hurd. For those who don't know Karen, I've been working with her for the last nine years and coaching her clients along with my own on the BEAM protocol. Karen changed the course of my life with her wisdom and her incredible belief in my body. I believed in my body, but I had never met anybody else who believed in my body's ability to heal like Karen did. And her vote of confidence, even though I didn't know her at the time, I felt the sense of, I'm home, this is where I belong. And I have been here ever since. Early next year, I'll be celebrating 10 years on the Bean Protocol and six years at that time of coaching and creating protocols for others and supporting other people heal their body naturally. It's kind of an incredible journey, one that I could not have imagined for myself. Anyway, so Karen Hurd is phenomenal and she's been practicing nutrition for 30 years. She holds a master's of science in biochemistry and is currently enrolled in the George Washington University in the Master's of Public Health program. Her philosophy approaching health is that food has the power to kill, food has the power to heal. It's your choice. Karen applies her knowledge at a biomolecular level to understand the cause of the health problems we face and what dietary and lifestyle changes are needed to correct the cause and unlock our best health. Amen, Karen, amen. I have indeed done that. With um, this incredible protocol, I have both healed my autoimmune disorder, have lived the last nine years incredibly healthy. I do not take any supplements other than magnesium occasionally and some fish oil. But other than that, I continue to track my blood work as I feel that tracking our blood work is part of preventative. You know, it's really important to catch illness before it sets in. And believe it or not, when I got sick, I felt amazing. I was living my best life. I was under eating, overworking out, running hills and thin and thinking I was doing an amazing job eating a salad here and there. So when my body broke down, I really felt kind of like, you know, sideswiped. Yes, I had gut issues, but who didn't, right? So getting blood work is important. It's tracking our inflammatory markers, it's tracking our levels, it's tracking our 
blood glucose, our fasting blood glucose, it's tracking our lipids, it's tracking our liver, it's tracking so many important elements, and I just can't stress that enough. Please get your blood work done, you guys. I work with Inside Tracker. I love them. My clients use them. It's a wonderful way for us to get feedback on the work we're doing together because I want everybody to feel comfortable, If especially if they're not on supplements. I think supplements are kind of this crutch that we're all leaning on, and I am very happy that I am currently able to get absolutely enough from the food I eat. It's kind of profound because I grew up thinking I needed supplements all the time. And you know, they're wonderful if you need them, but I'm kind of walking and talking proof that you don't have to take them. And Karen is as well, by the way. Karen and I chat about all things cholesterol and blood glucose. I hope you guys enjoy our chat today and I hope to see you soon. I was substitute teaching school today and I'm just back from the schoolroom, so. Your energy never ceases to amaze me. You're just full of energy and life. I am. It's all that clean eating over there. Yes, it's all the clean eating. I am excited to talk with you today about, well, I guess we're talking about sugar in the end, but we're talking about blood glucose. It has it on cholesterol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that as well. I, I didn't realize your brother passed from an insulin overdose. Yeah, when he was 10. Unbelievable. How old were you? I was nine. Wow. And I was the one who found him. And I couldn't wake him up. And I remember, because my mom told me, go wake up. Scott. Scott's in the TV room. We didn't know he's asleep. Go get Scott. It's time for dinner. And so I went to the TV room where, you know, the, where he was. And he was lying on the floor, I thought, asleep. And so I woke him, tried to wake him, and he wouldn't wake up. And he wouldn't wake up. And he wouldn't wake up. And so then I went and told mom, mom, Scott won't wake up. And then he was in a coma. And he didn't survive. Oh, my so. goodness. Was he born type 1 diabetic? He was diagnosed when he was 6. Okay. When he was 6 years old. He lived till he was 10 for 4 years after that. It was an insulin overdose. My mom just gave him too much insulin. He had the flu. And when you're sick, your blood sugars, everybody's blood sugars go up when you're sick. Why is that? You actually need the sugars to be able to speed your immune system to fight whatever the flu bug is. You know, your white blood cells have to move faster. You have to be able to just go in because sugar will speed those white blood cells right through the, the system. So it is very common. And so <laughs> anyway, she had called the physician and the physician had said, give him this much of the short acting insulin. It's just, it's acts right now. <laughs> and it was too much. Yeah. It was, it was terrible as a little girl, and I had lived with that all my life. Now I'm 64, you know, and it's always, you know, diabetes is a nasty piece. At, at that age, did, was it a, a factor in, in your relationship to sugar now, or did that come much later, like not eating sugar for well, you? Well, was much. Yeah, yeah. You okay. know, I, I grew up, you know, with everybody else. Well, you know, some people have diabetes, and. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother had, or paternal grandmother, and, you know, so it runs in the family, and, you know, it's hereditary, and listen to all that junk. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there are, to have diabetes, there are some genetic factors, but there are many genetic factors, and most of it is our diet, so, and some are born type 1 diabetics, but some, actually, we have a lot of type 1 diabetics that started out as a juvenile type 2 diabetic, and then they turn into type 1 diabetic. 
because they so exhaust their pancreas because they don't change their diet. What they do is they just take more and more meds. They eat all this sugar and then and then they say, oh, I'll just take more insulin. And then you, it's, it's just so dumb. It, we do so many things wrong. Yeah. Well, it's the Band-Aid method, right? It's, it's the, and also the path of least resistance. I know that you know how hard it is to get people off of sugar. Hard. And <laughs> it's just, and they don't want to. And then if they do, they, especially with children, it's just like, how can I say you can't have the cake and everybody else in class? I mean, I just came from a public school that was substitute teaching at the Fall Creek Public Schools. They eat terribly. I mean, you know, it, and their snacks, every snack is a sugar snack, every single one of them. So, and you can see firsthand being in the schools why we have an epidemic of young. I think it was something I was looking up on the internet before we hopped on of 40% of young American adults have is, it already have insulin resistance. And that seems like a high number to me. And you know what? I'm talking about kindergartners. That's all they eat is sugar. And then I'm also, I substitute for all grades. And then so today it was with high schoolers. And the high schoolers eat all sugar too. And I'd substitute for the second grade and the fourth grade and the sixth grade. I'd substitute it all. You know, it's just wherever they need me for the day. And they're all the same. All of it is sugar, sugar, and more sugar, and more sugar. I, I guess that brings up the huge question of how do we change school lunches? You know, how do we how do we shift it so it's a healthier for our our next generation? Because if forty, and I'm sure the numbers are continuing to shift and change, but if this is the real epidemic, why aren't we doing more for it? It's because we're we're blocked. I mean, to do that, you have to convince the school board, and then you know it has to come. And so, but then you'll have parents that will protest that I don't think you know this is bad for my kid. Everybody else is doing it. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult uphill battle. Can it be fought? Yeah. With success? Don't know that. You know, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. And I'm reaching the ones I can. We have lots of people out there. Not lots. Not enough of us you need. You know, we got Louise. Yeah, he's lovely. We just need a lot of us. To- he's lovely. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Good. Great. Good energy. Good focus. What are your thoughts about fruit? And it's one of the things I get the biggest pushback on. I get people coming to me from a high fruit diet really resist the idea of removing fruit for the healing process. I personally eat berries now, but it took me years to work them back into my diet because I actually noticed the way they affected my blood sugar. It's still additional sugar, you know, that you don't need. I mean, I did that today. I was substituting for health and PE. So Mm -hmm. I spent most of the day in the gym, you know, with the the kids in the Fayette. But there I had a couple classes. And so I said, listen, you know, ask me a question. I'm a nutritionist and this is what I do full time. And after 30 years, they're they're high schoolers. You know, they're like, oh, you, you know, are you real a real nutritionist? Because they just have their health and PE teacher, which is just, you know, usually PE. And I and so one of the kids asked me, what is the thing that we're most deceived about nutrition? And I said, it's fruit. We are taught. I said, look at the chart on your wall. It says that they have all these pictures of the fruit. And it's because they're high in antioxidants. And so we're pushing all of that high antioxidants. And I said, but it's high in sugar. And these are the problems with sugar. You could have those high antioxidants by doing vegetables. And they were like, really? Fruit's bad for you? I never, you know, they've been taught all their life that fruit you have to have fruit and vegetables. Forget the vegetables part. Just do the fruit. No, it doesn't matter how sweet it is. It's fruit's fine. 
Well, I think there's this this idea that fruit, because it has nutrients, it's not bad for you. But I've heard you also say before that vegetables have, what, was it 30% more nutrients than fruit? Yes. They can have more than 30%. They can have even 10 times more. But, you know, it depends on the, what you're comparing, what vegetables, what you're comparing it to what fruit. What, right, right. Yeah. I would imagine so. Yeah. So one of the numbers, I was looking at the one of the CDC numbers, there's 34.2 million people of all ages in the U.S. population that has diabetes. And 34.1 million adults aged 18 years or older has diabetes. Yeah. I was just like, okay, so if this isn't a, if we don't have a sugar addiction and it, there isn't this intervention around sugar or just greater education around sugar, you know, and, and recently I was listening to a science podcast and they were saying that there's actual neurons in the gut that when you eat sugar, send signals to your brain to get more sugar even. So it's not just the yep. taste. It's like your body will actually crave the sugar. Our job is, is huge, unique that we to, to educate people because that's what it's going to take is education. And the more people we teach, the more people will reach. And there will always be some, of course, that are not interested. So even if you teach them. Yep. So, so I think, you know, the interesting thing is, is that we do need glucose, right? Glucose, we need glucose. We have to survive. Right. It's food for the entire body. And is it fair to say that everything we eat is ultimately broken down to glucose? It's just how fast we get there. It's a pretty fair statement. I mean, the fructose utilizes fructose. It's five-membered instead of six-membered as far as the, the groups and the, the molecular structure. But I mean, it's basically, it's a, yeah, it's basically a true statement. Let's talk about blood glucose. I've been through your course. It's incredibly edu educational. I recommend anybody, really, even if you aren't insulin resistant or diabetic, to take it because I, I feel that the education there really leads you to why you don't want what I call a quick release material like sugar. Sugar is a very fast acting glucose, right? Whereas you have slow foods like complex carbs and beans, vegetables, you know, that break down a lot slower and don't cause the massive spike that, right. you know, a baked good or a candy or something would. That's correct. The carbohydrates aren't bad. It's just that they're simple. And then the simple carbohydrates are the ones that are easy to break down really rapidly. The complex carbohydrates take time. So the release of sugar into your bloodstream is slower. And then your complex carbohydrates typically come with a lot less sugar per volume. So if you're looking at something that's, you know, pick a volume, you know, or a weight of something and then say, well, you know, like I was looking at, huh, I was in the school today. And so the, the kids have, there, there's a coffee shop. This is a high school. So they have a coffee shop. So on break, they can come by and some, they have to have a teacher that that was one of my jobs today is supervising to make sure that they don't burn down the high school because they left a burner on where the coffee was or, you know, and I'm watching these these high schoolers, and they are drinking cappuccinos and all these coffee products and sugar. And I just took one, of the, and they have these little protein drinks in the refrigerator. Take it out there. Oh, there's 21 grams of sugar in one serving. You know, it's it's a sugar drink. You know, and it's like, well, it has seven grams of protein. And she's like, it is such a a marketing. It's it's just wrong. <laughs> it's a marketing technique to get you to buy their product. And then, you know, and I see all these high schoolers drinking all this coffee and, you know, it's just so sad. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's incredibly sad, but I also think that food predominantly isn't about food because food in itself is about nutrients and, and it's information for our body and for our health. And I think that what I see is that food is emotional. So food is a reward system, food, right? And it starts at a young age from parents going, oh, you're good, I'll give you a treat, right? So we have this deep connection to food being something other than just information for ourselves. It's, it's about, mm -hmm. it's kind of hedonistic a little bit. It's about pleasure versus nutrients. <laughs> and, and that's a hard cycle to break. How do you break that when it's so ingrained from a young age that food equals good, you're good or food equals, you know, you didn't get the treat. So maybe food equals you're bad. And then when you're an adult and you can just give yourself all of the treats you want, why wouldn't you, right? When that's the setup. <laughs> yeah. This is a very big hill to climb and some people never climb it. And so they, they die, you know, in their early seventies is the average life expectancy. Depends if you're a man or woman, but, mm -hmm. and then, but those are our choices. So, so if you want to eat sugar, that's your choice. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to smoke. It's not good for you to drink. But if you want to do that, that's your choice. You have that choice. As long as you're not impinging upon, you know, somebody else, you know. Right. If you're eating sugar and you're horrible, well, you're feeling horrible, just, just stay out. Don't come around me so I don't have to hear your, you know, your little conniption fits about whatever. But no, we have to give everybody free choice. We really do. Absolutely. But the, I think the trouble with the sugar relationship is that it's a cascade of health imbalances that come from that one imbalance. So if you have, if you're insulin resistant, that leads to all of these other health issues, correct? Yes. And it's not just insulin resistance. I mean, that's just one problem is sugar causes inflammation because when you eat sugar, it goes into your body. And then those sugars are converted into triacylglycerols. That's a type of fat, which is what causes high cholesterol. But at the same time that you have those triacylglycerols, then you have all this excess sugar. You get some converted fats, and some of them are going to be stored in what's called adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. It's fat cell. You start to tuck this fat away in the fat cell, but when you do that, you're triggering a release of adipokines. Well, what's an adipokine? It's a it's an it's a substance that will cause inflammation in that area. So then you're in pain mm -hmm. at the same time. So you create this pain also. So it's not just insulin resistance, but you get pain out of eating sugar. It, is there a certain amount of sugar that the body then so say you eat sugar? your body releases insulin to usher it into the cells. If, if, if it ushers in what it can, the rest is in the bloodstream and the insulin will turn that into triglycerides. Is, and then it ushers it out of the bloodstream and tucks it away into fat cells. Is that, is that how it gets the fat correct. out of the bloodstream? That is correct. And it also is converted into LDL. LDL is low-density lipoproteins, which mm. is our bad cholesterol. Mm. See, when you look at LDL, when you take apart an LDL molecule, what is it? An LDL molecule is just a triglyceride, a bunch of triglycerides all packed together, and then it has an apple lipoprotein shell around it. Mm. That's what an LDL is. So your LDL will, your, will go up. Well, what? why is that bad? Well, LDL are really sticky little molecules, and they like to stick to other little molecules and inside the artery walls and they, it, when they oxidize, and they oxidize very easily. And mm. so the second most oxygen-rich environment in your body is at your heart. The first most oxygen-rich environment is your brain. And when you expose LDL molecules to oxygen and they have an oxidated LDL, then it becomes very troublesome. That's when it sticks to other molecules. It's specifically 
proteins that are coming through your bloodstream stick to the artery walls, stick to each other, and then they make a plaque. They, more of them stick together, and then pretty soon they have what's called an occlusion. So that if you have this, this is uh, your artery, then then you have this this occlusion, or part of your artery is closed off, and you can have half, you can have more if it's closed off totally. Then you have a myocardial infarction, which is a fancy word for heart attack because the blood can't get to at all. So what do we do for that? Do we tell people to eat differently? Well, some of us are preaching out there. But what the physicians do is they go in, they they put a stent in there, Mm. you know, and press the fat against the wall, basically. And then the stent goes in there and the stent is open, you know, Mm. and it's a a tube. And so, but then there can be cholesterol buildup in the stent over the years. And then that can be blocked too. Or if it's so blocked, there's bypass surgery. You go in and you just... There's several different arteries. You just cut out the bad part, throw it away, and pull the other two ends together. You stick up something you know, like a cadaver artery in there and stitch it in there. So anyway. Is there, is there a, a surplus, you know, that happens if you're eating too much sugar? And, and my understanding, so it's sugar and then alcohol is the other biggest, you know, it, it's immediately turned into triglycerides. Yes, we want to use sugar in that we have we're using it as a fuel so what your insulin does it does two things it, it, it triggers a receptor site on a cell well mm-hmm. on a cell well we have many many receptor sites for for glucose and you but you have to have a trigger you can't just you know walk through an open doorway the door has to be open for you so mm-hmm. what opens the door is the insulin the insulin opens the door on that receptor site so then the sugar the glucose molecule can pass out of the bloodstream into the internal part of the cell. And in that internal part of the cell, there's a certain organelle there called a mitochondria. And then that's what the glucose goes to that. And we actually oxidize it. We burn it for fuel. And then your cell has the energy to do whatever that cell's job is. So it's a fuel. Mm-hmm. But if you get too many triglycerides in your bloodstream, they actually coat the cell wall and where those receptor sites are then the insulin can't trigger them because there's it's like grease on a doorknob. You know, you might still be able to turn the doorknob, but if you get a lot of grease on there, you may not be able to turn the doorknob at all. Triglycerides are grease. They're literally grease. They're a fat. And they coat this the cells with this fatty layer. And then those insulin molecules coming along trying to attach to the receptor site to open the door, they can't open the door. And so then the glucose has to stay in the bloodstream. It doesn't get into the cell. And if it stays in the bloodstream, then the insulin will just convert it into the triglyceride. And then your fat layer gets even thicker. And then your cholesterol goes up. So the body tries to usher the glucose into the cell. If it can't usher the glucose into the cell, because now is that because there's just too much of the triglycerides in the bloodstream and it's coating the cell so that there isn't an entry point? Yes. And that's what's called insulin resistance, by the way. That is insulin resistance. So then the body pulls it out, turns it into a fat cell, you gain weight, but then you eat something sweet, you go through the process again, but how do you clean off those cells? Like, how do you... How do you strip the grease off the cell wall? Yeah. You have to reduce the number of triglycerides in your bloodstream. The majority of people that have diabetes, and you have to look at type 1s and type 2s, but mainly your type 2s, type 1s do too, they have a very high triglyceride level. 
Okay. It's way over the 150 is considered normal. I prefer to see them at 60 and below, triglycerides mm. at 60 and below, and then you're going to be in great shape. But if you're over 150, then you're going to be have a tendency towards diabetes because you have all this grease, the triglycerides are grease in your bloodstream, and they're coating, sticking to the cell walls. So what we have to do is, first of all, bring down your overall triglyceride level. Well, how do you do that? Well, you have to, to realize that there's a digestive fluid, bile, that's made in the liver, and the bile is made out of triglycerides. <laughs> so if we could get rid of our bile, then your liver would be able to make new bile, and it makes it out of the triglycerides in your bloodstream. So what happens with bile after the liver makes it, it's a transport system for fatty, fat-soluble wastes. And so most of almost everything that's toxic to us is a fat-soluble waste. And so the liver clears out those fat-soluble waste, but it needs a transportation method to get this waste into the gastrointestinal tract so that we can have a bowel movement and excrete it. Well, that transportation system is the bile fluids. And so the bile fluids that are made out of triglycerides, and then they are able to take all of this fat-soluble waste in its garbage truck carries it down to the gastrointestinal tract. If a person will eat soluble fiber, which you'll find in beans, that soluble fiber binds, and I, I call it binding, it's, it's, it's just the best way to just state it sometimes to make it simple, but it actually captures the molecules in a very complex polysaccharide net. You're saying the molecules get captured and they can't get uncaptured. They are forever bound to this soluble fiber. And so then the bile, when it reaches a place where normally it would recycle at 95%, the bile is carried out into the toilet because all fiber, 100% of fiber, no exceptions, all of it is excreted into the toilet. None of it will be absorbed into your bloodstream. So you're throwing all the fiber away and anything that's soluble fiber bound up, you throw it away. So you throw away your bile. Then the liver gets a signal, hey, we didn't get 95% of our bile back today because the liver is a very conservative organ. It's not going to make bile. If you got bile coming back from the gastrointestinal tract, why make new? Let's mm. use the old. And so it recycles the old bile and say, okay, now we have bile. And so you send that down with the fat-soluble waste in it into the gastrointestinal tract. You eat soluble fiber. Those are your beans and psyllium. For, you can, that's another soluble fiber. And then you throw that little bit of bile away. And, you know, it, it sounds simple because you think, okay, well, I'm probably just making bile once a day. No, 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 no. This recycling is happening anywhere from 21 to 72 times a day, a day, all day long. You're just recycling, recycling, recycling. So the more often you eat soluble fiber, the more you throw away your bile, you throw away your bile, then the liver has to make new bile because it has to have bile to keep you alive because it has to have this transportation way to get rid of the fat-soluble waste. And the fat-soluble waste, they will stop eating fat-soluble waste. It, the, the vast majority of fat-soluble waste, we're making it. It's our hormones. We make it. It's the meta, When we metabolize something, we make fat-soluble waste. It's just like, you know, when you cook something in the kitchen, you throw away whatever, the peels to the whatever it is, and you, you make waste. Well, we do that all the time in the human body, huge amounts of waste. And so that has to be cleared by the liver. If it's not cleared by the liver, the fat soluble waste will kill you in under 24 hours. No joke, you will be dead. 
So that's why we will make bio. We have to, to have a transportation system to get rid of this, this fat-soluble waste. So let's say you don't eat any sugar, you don't drink alcohol, you don't eat any pastries, you minimize your fruit to berries, and you're eating proteins and fats and vegetables predominantly, and complex carbs in the form of vegetables and beans, and your your bile is still triglycerides because of your metabolic waste? It'll be triglycerides. It will hmm. still be triglycerides. It's the way it's made. But your triglyceride level in your bloodstream will drop below 60. Hmm. It'll drop very low. Mine's 20. You know? Holy baloney. Yeah. So it's, it's 20. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's 20, you know? And you'll say, well, what happens, Karen, if you run out of triglycerides? <laughs> no problem. The liver will make triglycerides for you. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. What a system. So what is special about soluble fiber that it is strong enough to hold bile? Because my understanding is bile is just, it's like, it's, it's intense. Bile is intense. Well, it's because the construct of a soluble fiber molecule is it's many branched. If you've ever looked at chemical structures, there's carbon and then they're connected to hydrogens and oxygens. And there's all these bonds that are holding this molecule together. And then the more branched it is, that means it looks like tree branches and, you know, with the, the different chemical bonds that are happening between our carbons, hydrogens, and oxygens, then it actually creates a net and things can get caught in the branches of the tree, if you will. And they get stuck there. And that's exactly what happens. These are molecules of bile. So it's not, we're talking bigger molecules and they get stuck in the branches of the tree or in the net or however you want to say. And then they, they can't get unstuck. And so then they are carried out with that fiber all the way into the toilet. And we throw it away. Soluble fiber is the only fiber that does this. There's not any other fiber that does that. And some of your soluble fibers are not as potent as others as far as their binding. Like a lot of people say, well, I'm doing wheat dextrin. It's a soluble fiber. Dextrin is a soluble fiber. But its binding capacity is basically zilch. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the, the structure like psyllium does or like beans do that many, many branches coming out. And so it can't really bind with very much. And people say, I'm using, what's another one that people are saying? Gargum. Yes, gargum. Oh, gargum will do nothing <laughs> for you. You know, and so, and, and then people are, you know, so I'm saying, I'm stirring this into my, you know, whatever protein smoothie or whatever, or I'm taking these gargum pills. It, it's, that's nice, but it's not going to do you much good at all. You need there's degrees of the efficacy of soluble fiber. It has to do with their chemical structure. So it's really beets and psyllium are the only two that are strong enough to bind your bile and to make some differences for you. Any sugar, alcohol, fruit, et cetera, that we eat on top of a healthy diet, we're creating an excess of triglycerides because the liver is going to actually take care of the rest. If we didn't, if we didn't pile on, we would be perfectly fine. Exactly. We would be perfectly fine. Yes. Yes. Crazy. It's crazy, crazy. but it's wonderful. <laughs> you know, I, I have not had fruit in 30 years. I don't do alcohol. I don't do sweets. I don't do any of that. And so I, I feel fine. I mean, I can go be with a bunch of high schoolers or kindergartners or wherever it is. And then I do a lot of stuff. I'm running for a state legislator. I am, you know, I am running a practice. I write 
scripts for movie and produce movies. And, you know, I write for four different newspapers, local newspapers, and I'm just got a Lion of the Year award from the, I'm part of the Fall Creek Lions. And so you're doing community service and I'm in the Historical Society. I'm a veteran and always setting up military honors and marching in parades. And I am everywhere doing everything. And I have a tremendous amount of energy. And so, because I don't have the health problems because I have not been doing the fruit and the sugar and the alcohol. Mm. And I don't do caffeine either. Caffeine's another that's not the subject I know today, but that's another bugaboo. And I don't do perfumes and fragrances. That's another big bugaboo. So I get so many questions about unique. Why can't I use my essential oils? And unique. Why can't I use my perfumes and my products? And I know pheromones. I've learned from you about pheromones and how that affects the endocrine system. And also that there are a lot of chemicals in perfumes that are endocrine disruptors. So you're looking at that as well. But I also know that one of your passions is the study of cancer. And I believe that's where one of your reasons that you don't like these little molecules. Is that correct? Yeah. There, and anybody can just look up, you know, if you look at your perfume bottle and start reading the long list of chemical ingredients and then go, you can look up what are these, you know, there's a material data sheet on everything that we have. Are these cancer causing? They're all they're all listed as they're cancer. They're called carcinogenic substances, cancer causing substances. So the problem is that they're tiny little molecules. They're really small. I mean, much smaller than like a milk funeral molecule or something that is thousands of protein residues long, but. They're so tiny that they can diffuse. That means they can walk through the cell wall. Everything in the cell is very highly protected because you don't want just anything coming inside the cell because then it can invade the cell, disrupt the cell, kill the cell, or commandeer the machinery of the cell, such as happens with the virus, and then multiply itself and eject itself out of the cell and then go ahead and infect other cells. So we're, we're trying to protect the inside of the cell. So you can't just get in there. there it's a gated entrance. Mm. And there's all kinds of gates that you, there's ion gates and there's water gates and there's, there's the protein gates. And anyway, perfume molecules don't have to go through the gate. Mm. They don't have to have triggers and they don't have to have these cellular mediators. They could just, just diffuse. They just walk through a wall. It's like a ghost walking through a wall, you know? And they go straight into the cell. And once they're in the cell, they actually attach to another little molecule that drags them through the nuclear envelope. Because inside of every cell, we have a nuclear, well, with the exception of red blood cells and neurons, so almost every cell, we have inside a nuclear envelope inside the cell, which is another protective barrier because inside there, in that inner envelope, is your DNA. And every cell in your body carries a complete copy of your DNA all of it, the entire genome. And so if that gets into the cell, all this little robe per perfume molecule that's so tiny that it just taxes to, I said another molecule is called the transcription factor. You should know that's the name of it. It's a transcription factor. And it attaches to a transcription factor. And then together they diffuse, walk through the wall, through into the nuclear envelope. And so the only way you can get in there is through what's called the nuclear pore. It's another receptor site mm. on the nuclear envelope. You can only go through the doorway and it's gated. And only certain things will trigger that doorway so that you can get into the nucleus of the cell where we're housing the DNA. Not so with perfume molecules. They just walk right through the wall. 
And because we have a transcription factor attached, it just goes whoop and just lands randomly somewhere on your DNA. Well, we, DNA is very large, extremely large. So it may land on a place that doesn't really matter. You know, it, it doesn't really make any difference to your health. But what if it lands on the P53 gene? Well, the P53 gene is our main defense against cancer. And so what happens when it lands? It swaps out, it swaps out the nucleotides. You know, we have three have these three member sequences. They're called a codon and that that are nucleotides. And so then when they land, then there's a transcription that takes place. They they swap maybe an A for a T or, you know, these are different names. Anyway, I won't go. That gets into a lot of fun stuff in genetics. But anyway, it just, it mutates. That's the best way to say it. It mutates your DNA at that particular gene. Hmm. And so maybe it doesn't make a difference, but maybe it's one that makes all the difference in the world. And is it the same with the perfumes and fragrances and essential oils? Or is essential oil fall into a different category? That's the biggest pushback I get with my clients is essential oils are amazing and healing and people sniff them for all different types of reasons. Talk to me about that. Essential oils do fall into this category. They are small molecules and they cause cancer too and they cause mutation on your DNA. Do I say that they don't make you feel amazing? Of course they do. That's why people use them. That's why people smoke cigarettes. It's why people use recreational drugs. It is why people drink. It is why people eat sugar because they feel amazing. If they have their caffeine, they feel amazing. Until they don't. Until they don't. <laughs> Until they don't. The person I was substitute teaching for today on her desk, it, you know, it says, my day doesn't start until I have my coffee. Once I have my coffee, then I can do my day. And I just thought, yes, it's so true for so many people. Because if you don't have that caffeine, you feel like you can't do your day. And then, but the caffeine, why do we do it? Is it harmful? We know it's harmful. Everybody knows. We know that it increases your estrogen. We know that it's a cause of uh, estrogen-fed cancers. It's so well-documented, not tens of studies, hundreds, thousands of studies on this, you know? And we just try to just, like, block. Uh, it's like if I cover up my eyes, that means I'm not seeing anything. So it's not there. It's still there, even if you don't, you know, you don't want to listen to it. So it is the same way with essential oils. Yes, they will make you feel more calm and centered if you breathe your lavender essential oil. I do not argue that back. Just like caffeine will make you feel much better and brighter too. Well, but I think one of the issues is, is that you have all of these prominent figures and scientists talking about the benefits of caffeine, right? So I think what's interesting in nature is that something can have its benefits with also having its downsides. And, and then the other thing is that you have some people who metabolize coffee really well, or you have all of these men saying how amazing it is, and maybe men metabolize it differently than women metabolize it. And so I think there's just a lot of confusion of how can this one thing that is so great for this one person be so much worse for this other person. And I think we are communal in a lot of ways. So if you have somebody who smells amazing in the group, everybody wants to smell amazing with that person who smells amazing. And they got this incredible essential oil on and they smell, they smell amazing because your own endorphins or, or pheromones or whatever it is that's taking in their scent is, is responding to it possibly. I'm not a scientist, but, you know, I know that I've smelled people before and went, wow, that's a really nice smell. I don't wear any scents myself because, well, I've been on the bean protocol for nine years, but, you know, I can appreciate it when I smell it. And 
I don't do well with caffeine, even though interesting in my genetics, it says I metabolize it just fine. I don't. I get really painful periods if I try to insert caffeine into my life. It's just my body's response. And because I feel so good, I notice when I don't feel good, which is kind of the benefit of feeling good all the time, is that there's an immediate response. But there's just articles after article coming out. And I know because I'm watching like the benefits of coffee and it's so good for you. So how do you combat and how do you tell people that, yes, maybe it does have these good qualities, but it's not going to be good for everybody? I mean, how do you deal with that? You have to present the whole truth because what they're presenting is a partial truth. Okay. It's all throughout life and in every walk of life. If you just give your the one good thing that it could do, well, what about all the bad things? And does that actually negate the good thing that it could do? We're, we're always faced with those type of choices. I mean, of you know, but it, the, the fruit, it has all these wonderful antioxidants. Yes, it does. And that's, that's very helpful and that's good. But it also comes with all the sugar. And overall, the sugar is going to set you up for more cancer. And it didn't matter that you ate all those fruits. But so is there, is there a way that we can have the best of all those worlds? Yeah, well, we eat our vegetables because they don't have the sugar, but they have all the antioxidants. So there are, there are answers, but... The people, it is it is the nature of humankind. We want to justify something that we enjoy. People enjoy caffeine. It is very addictive. You want your caffeine. You feel better with your caffeine. By the way, I feel fantastic and I don't do any caffeine at all. That's because I'm not addicted and I'm eating well. And so I actually feel better than those who are addicted to caffeine and they think they're on fire. Oh, no, I, this is a girl that's on fire. You want to yeah. meet somebody on fire, you're meeting her. And so <laughs> I do no caffeine. Because I am that healthy. And so, you know, they think that they're healthy. You know, you made, you know, you alluded to the fact, well, some men, you know, some people feel better, you know, maybe men metabolize it better, all that. They are still having the detrimental effects. It's just, has it caught up with them yet? It will, mark my words, it will catch up with them. Are, are you alluding to prostate cancer? Prostate cancer is one of the things, mm -hmm. definitely one of the things that can happen to men. Because of the conversion, the hormonal conversion. Because of estrogen. then they're going to be producing more estrogen because of this caffeine intake. And mm. so, when the more estrogen you produce, then you're going to be headed for prostate problems. You're in a male's body, and you're not supposed to be having female hormones at that level. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have, right? I've heard you say this. I have testosterone. I have estrogen. I have progesterone. I have aromatase. I have an uh, androgens. Like, we all have this kind of. Well, collection of hormones that is uh, reacting in our body at all times but at different levels and and different things can escalate different levels well let's get back a little bit to blood sugar triglycerides high triglycerides insulin resistance then converted into ldl right so what are levels that you feel are have a healthy levels i've heard you say 60 now for triglycerides triglycerides what about for ldl and hdl for well, HDL, you want it as high as you can get it. How do you get it higher? Mine oh. is always like 80. That's a great HDL. 80? Oh. 80 okay. is great. Anything above 40 is good oh. on HDL. So okay. you have 80, you're flying high. <laughs> HDL is high density lipoprotein is actually protective. So mm -hmm. it, it keeps the LDL from oxidizing and actually acts as a transport carrier to haul the LDL before it oxidizes to the liver and the liver will throw it into your bile. It was taken into your gut and then hopefully you have soluble fiber and you throw away that LDL molecule. But HDL is very good. So anything above 40 is good. So 
Eskimos can have an, L- an HDL and, you know, a 200 or something, you know, and then they'll have an overall cholesterol of 300 or more. And people say, oh, that's horrible. No, well, if you've got 200 HDL, it doesn't matter. The, the total cholesterol number is not important. Mm. So you want, a, you want an LDL that is 100 or below. That's okay. LDL is just, a, it stands for low-density lipoprotein, but just think of L for lousy. That's not the one we want. And think of HDL, stands for high-density lipoprotein, but think of H for healthy. You want the H and you don't want the, you want the healthy, not the lousy. So if somebody has really low HDL, what ha- what's going on there for them? And they, because- they, don't, they, they don't have a transport system to really haul their LDL out. Mm-hmm. And so you, you just think of HDL as like a bouncer at a bar. And the LDL are the drunks that are getting into fights, okay? You got the HDL there and say, hey, you two, out and throws them out of the bar, you know? And that's exactly what HDL is doing. The LDL are the, the, the ruffigans, you know? And, and so <laughs> causing problems, trouble, <laughs> making trouble. And so if you don't have enough bouncers, you're going to have those LDLs, those drunks causing fights in there, but you don't have any bouncers. So they tear up the bar and they hurt each other. And there's just like chaos in there. So <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, the most important number that a person, when you're looking at cholesterol, you want to look at what's called a CRR. It stands for cardiac risk ratio, CRR. And it used to be a lot of labs, they would go ahead and figure them. And they still do. They'll figure that ratio for you. It's really easy to figure. But that's the most important thing that you need to figure. How do you do that? You take your total cholesterol, so your total number, and then you divide it by your HDL, your good cholesterol. And that's going to give you ratio. And anything 5.0 and below is normal and you are at no risk for heart disease. So we'll have people that'll have, you know, we'll say, Karen, my cholesterol is 280. My doctor wants to put me on cholesterol-lowering meds. And I said, well, don't give me your total cholesterol of 280. Tell me what your HDL is. And then what we can do is figure out what your cardiac risk Well, my HDL is 150. Well, you do the division on that, you have a very low, you're never going to be at risk for heart disease because your HDL, you got lots of bouncers. They just bounce all these LDLs out. It's not a problem. So, and people get really, you know, the concern, they say, well, my total is so heavy. It's because my, you need to understand a total cholesterol number is you're just, it's just straight addition. You take how many LDL do I have plus how many HDL, just add them together. And then we take a small percentage of your triglycerides. And then that's what gives you your total cholesterol. It's just an addition. It's not difficult. So we we get all bit out of shape about these numbers. And even in the, you know, there's all kinds of good articles that are written about, you know, we put too much emphasis on cholesterol that, you know, that's really not an issue that, you know, it's other issues that are creating our health problems. And it's really true. I mean, I asked the kids that we had to divide up a team so they'd play big base. I don't know. It's, just, it's a game. High schoolers play in gym, okay? It's, it's kickball, basically. But, you know, so I decided, well, you know, you could pick the team captain. No, no, no. I say, okay. I got a question for you. This is supposed to be PE class and you're all in my health class too. You know, and I'm, you know, okay. So who I want to, here's the question. Which has more cholesterol, an egg white or an egg yolk? Those who think it's the egg white go stand over here. Those who think it's the egg yolk go stand over here. And it is real. They split half and half. The kids are split half and half. I don't even have to, you know, switch them around, you know, except sometimes there's more girls on one team than boys. But anyway, and, and, so, 
But sometimes I have to switch it for that because then they they don't have the the power that the boys do in this game. But anyway, so there there we have it. So they they don't know, and so most people we say, well, eggs are terrible because they're high in cholesterol. That's what we hear. Well, first of all, you need to know that the cholesterol in eggs is does not raise your blood cholesterol level because it's not the type of cholesterol that we're looking at. It's a different the cholesterol comes in many different molecular structures. And so in whether it goes into an LDL, an HDL, a triacylglycerol, or we also have, we haven't even get in, there's very low density lipoproteins and very, very low density lipoproteins. And they're all just different types of lipoprotein is a fat with some protein molecules on it. And so we're all worried about eggs and eggs for how many decades unique have the eggs been demonized that you can't eat eggs if you have high cholesterol because they're what causes high cholesterol. We went to you know, these egg powders, you know, and, you know, that you have to buy them. And egg whites don't have any cholesterol at all. They have zero cholesterol. It's only in the yolk. So you could just eat the egg whites if you're really that concerned, but it doesn't make any difference anyway, because eggs do not raise blood cholesterol. What does? Sugar does. Sugar, alcohol, anything else? What else? Sugar and alcohol. Sugar and alcohol. And fruit. And fruit. Sugar, alcohol, and fruit. Okay, so... That's it. Those are so so really this this obsession with meat raising cholesterol and when people go on a vegetarian diet their cholesterol drops. Is it about the meat? See, this is where we have a fallacy, you know, because we hear these general statements. I went on a vegetarian diet and my cholesterol dropped. What else changed when you went on the vegetarian diet? Did you give up caffeine? Did you also give up your sugars? Because people when they usually start to eat better they have changed everything mm -hmm. so what is the, what are the other factors you know that are we call them confounding factors that are giving us a, a wrong association because we didn't take into account well you also gave up all this other bad stuff at the same time right. so you have to go back and individually control for that in a study and very few people do it's just not done you just <laughs> There's a lot of research that needs to be done. There's a lot of junky research, too. There um, is a lot of junky research. I read a lot of junky research all the time. It's <laughs> just so like, oh, that's not true. I'm sometimes appalled at what I read. I'm in a master's degree. Another, I'm, I already have a master's degree in biochemistry, but I'm getting another master's in public health. And I am just astounded at some of the material we are required to read that is just like, this is such faulty research. I'm just... I'm ashamed that, you know, this university is, you know, relying on this because look at the confounding factors. Look at the, the what we call lurking variables that are not even accounted for. You cannot count a study as valid. You cannot make an association or a correlation, much less a correlation. So anyway, yeah, we got a lot of junky research out there. A lot of junky research. So, so even, I just want to go back for a minute. So veggies, beans they're still converted into glucose. So you don't really ever need. So if a person is worried, like my blood sugar is dropping, right? They've eaten sugar or or some people have low blood sugar, right? In general, they're yeah. and they feel tired and brain fog all the time. The, the thing to do is not to reach for more sugar, right? No, because that's going to increase their hyper, their hypoglycemia. What they want to reach for is have a carbohydrate. Go have some beans, please. Eat all the beans you want. They're not going to raise your blood sugar. They're going to give you that brain fuel that you need. You're going to get the glucose. Mm -hmm. Have some green beans or some peas or some broccoli or 
all your vegetables, all carbohydrates are converted to blood glucose. So you don't have to go nutty nuts with like bread and pastries and to get or fruit even to get glucose because your body is going to convert. And, and what does your body do with protein? Does your, that end up in glucose as well? It can, but that's only if you're in ketosis and that's not a wise place to go or to be. I mean, we do have people that are doing ketotic diets, which I do not recommend at all because proteins are very difficult and damaging to your liver and kidney processes can be converted into a sugar. But protein is actually used for proteins. Proteins are made of amino acids. We mm -hmm. have 21 amino acids, of which nine are essential that our body cannot make. We have to eat to be able to get them. The rest of them can be made out of the essential amino acids. And so we use proteins to build every cell we have. When you have a a cell being replicated, the, you know, one cell dies and is replaced by another. How is that cell built? What is it built up? It's built of proteins. Every single cell we have, it's, it's dependent upon protein. You say, well, fat cells are all fat. That is a true statement. But you have enzymes that are acting on that, and all our enzymes are made out of proteins. I mean, we have, <laughs> you have to have protein. If you don't, you have to have those amino acids. So your body would prefer to use proteins as proteins and not have to convert them into blood glucose because you do have to have blood glucose to exist. So the best thing to do is eat, eat your vegetables and eat your beans. You can live on protein, beans, and vegetables, and then you should have some good fats too in there and, and water the rest of your life and live to 120. That is the lifespan of mankind is 120. Very few people make it that long. I think it's the blue zone people that get the furthest down the, down the road on that one. The what blue the blue zone people, have you? I don't know about them, no. Oh, they, there are certain places in the world where um, these people live, centenar centenarians, I believe they're called. They live to be 100 and beyond and healthy, where they're still gardening and they're still active and healthy. And they've studied their diets and they eat a lot of vegetables, they eat some protein, they eat a lot of legumes. Some of them will have a glass of, of wine every night. I found that interesting. But they look at it and they think that there's a lot of factors to why they live to be so to old, old, old. You know, they outlive. Uh, you know, I didn't understand the, the reference that you were giving them, whatever you called it. Blue. The blue zone people. Blue zone people. Blue zone is what you're saying. But yes, I know about the studies that look at, you know, longevity among populations and what are, what's, what's giving them that longevity. Yeah. And they're active. They're, they don't necessarily have a, a form of working out, but they're active. You know, like you're active. You're, you, you have get up and go and you have energy for your life. You're not dragging your buns around trying to get through your day. I don't get that sense from you anyway. No, not at all. <laughs> and see, we have to look at too, when you look at the, these people that have longevity, are they exposed to the same things that we're exposed to? Do right. they wear perfumes and fragrances? Because in the United States of America, you can't go anywhere without being exposed to perfumes and fragrances. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter if you go to the bowling alley, you go to the grocery store, you go to, you know, wherever you go, there is someone there that has perfume and it's, it's pervasive. So are these people that have environment where there aren't any? Because those things ages very quickly the perfumes and fragrances and essential oils they're aging you because what is the process of aging it is a mutation of your dna that's what creates aging is mm -hmm. mutated dna and your perfumes and fragrances just compound this they just race you along on that path do does does the imbalanced blood sugar eating sugar does that it can just because of the adrenaline push 
You see, because we have this adrenaline push when you eat sugar, then you have a large release of insulin and then your blood sugar goes down rapidly. And then because you've got to have sugar, then your, your liver has to go through a process called gluconeogenesis so that you could produce enough sugar. And to do that, you have to have a release of adrenaline to do that. So adrenaline wear a person out. Adrenaline is what makes people feel great. I mean, that's your fight and flight hormone. Your thinking fast. That's what you get when you drink caffeine. But you wear out your adrenal glands. And so in a sense, you could say that's aging us in that sense because your adrenal glands become so fatigued. You grow old. You're just tired. You're tired, tired all the time. Life is so... <sighs> well, so dragging. Boring. I mean, I, I work with people that they'll have a coffee in the morning. And then mid-morning, they have another coffee and then a coffee in the afternoon. And they have these points where they're just, you know, relying on it to, to keep them going. And then I have people who are intermittent fasting and they're doing a 16-8, a 16-hour fast and an eight-hour feed. And they're just drinking coffee the entire morning until they get to their feeding window. I'm really curious what you think of intermittent fasting because it is everywhere. I'm sure you get questions about it. I get questions every day about it. I do not. Uh, I do not agree with intermittent fasting because what it's doing is you have to have glucose to run your brain cells. Period. You have to have it. Otherwise, you are dead. So, if you are not getting the food, then you're going to have to make glucose. The liver is very capable of doing that, but you have to have a trigger. That trigger is adrenaline. So then you have adrenaline rush. And so the people that are on intermittent fasting, they'll be okay for a while. It seemed great in the beginning because they are always in a fight and flight mode because they have to produce glucose in this, in this fasting part. And so they feel better because that fight and flight, that's adrenaline. That's a feel good hormone. But you keep doing it, just keep doing it over time. And then you're going to crash. You're going to, what's the matter with me? Now I have all these health problems. I have aches and pains and now terrible. I'm diagnosed with cancer. And what is, well, we knew that it was coming. We knew that it was coming. I did want to go back to the sugar and cancer. How does sugar cause cancer? Epinephrine and norepinephrine are molecules that are very small too. Any hormone is a very small molecule. And they also diffuse through the cell membrane and through the nuclear envelope. And they can mutate DNA all on their own, just like a perfume molecule. Who can't? So when you're exposed to these constant washings of hormones larger than you need, then that predisposes you to cancer. Well, so if you have a genetic factor, or even if you didn't have a genetic factor, you don't have to have a genetic factor to have cancer, it sounds like. Well, you don't have to have a genetic factor to have cancer. Cancer is a mutation in your DNA. And then what happens is one of the codons, they're called stop codons, they get damaged. And so now there's, the cell just keeps making more and more and more of itself, more and more and more and more. And that's what cancer is not something that's releasing poisons into your bloodstream and it's poisoning you it's an abnormal growth that crowds out the function of your normal liver or lungs or wherever the cancer is it just keeps growing and growing and it just takes over mm. just pushes out the normal function because those cells have all been <laughs> mutated and then then the mutated cells just grow grow yeah. Understood. I, well, I have a, I have some questions if you're up for it. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with cholesterol or insulin resistance? Insulin, yeah. You can bring down your insulin resistance and your cholesterol. Just eat your soluble fiber at least three times a day. If you have a really bad problem, six times a day. Frequency is the important factor, not you ate a lot at one time. Frequency, because you're recycling your bile very often. 
And I guess, you know, I get people with, so some of the questions, I'll pull them up, but I know one of the questions is you're working with a couple of people who have babies who are having seizures. How does the BEAN protocol help with seizures and what causes these seizures in these little babies? The, the particular twins that you're talking about, by the way, they're doing fabulously well. I mean, now the, the mom is putting it out on their whatever blog, chat group, you know, with these because they have a genetic tendency. We do have some people that are born with this, but what most people don't understand, like you say, well, I have the BRCA gene, you know, the breast cancer gene, so I need to have both breasts cut off and cut out everything that is, you know, say, no, 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 you have to understand. You can turn genes on and you can turn genes off. So if, and that's through a process called epigenetics. So if we never turn on those BRCA genes or we never turn on the seizure genes in these little kids or we turn them off, if they're turned on and we turn them off, then you're going to have fewer seizures. Seizures are typically, they're, they're always triggered. They're triggered by perfumes or a big trigger of seizures, massive trigger of seizure. Sugar is, fruit is, caffeine is. So we take these things away. We make sure that they're getting plenty of soluble fiber, remove all the circulating hormones because these kids tend to run higher on their own endogenous. It means their own internally produced hormones that we just need to pull down that level. And so we get them on the soluble fiber, take away all their sweets and all the stimulants. And it's like, you've got to have a scent-free home because they'll, they'll notice that your kid's fine until you went somewhere and you know, Aunt Susan was wearing whatever perfume or essential oil and then they immediately trigger a seizure and the kids go into seizure. So we have to turn the genes off. So does it take, is there a measurable amount of time that it takes to turn these genes off that have been triggered? Actually, it's a pretty short amount of time depending on, you know, what we're looking at. Now, some, in the, and I have to specify, there are some genetic deformities that we can't change, like trisomy, like Down syndrome. This is a whole chromosomal issue, you know. Right. We have an extra chromosome. We can't change that. that. That can't be changed. But all these things that we have tendencies towards, we can really back this up. And then, but there'll still be, there'll still be some problems because you're still going to be exposed to a trigger sometime that you weren't expecting because you were going here and you know you're going to a set-free place, but you get there and all of a sudden you say, "I'm here." We're turning around, and walking out, but the exposure is already made. So then, you know, we have problems. Right. And then that sends them into f adrenalized or fight or flight, and that will trigger the seizures. Yes. Fascinating. What essential oils do, that's what perfumes do. Why are we breathing them? Why do we want them so badly? Because they're giving us a hormonal response. They make you feel more lovey-dovey. They make, you know, they, they, I'm just using that, you know, the more sex appeal is what I'm trying to say here. They make you feel brighter and happier. They make you feel more calm and with it, you know, or whatever, you know, it, yes, you're having a hormonal response. Welcome to the world of hormones, which are nuclear receptor. I mean, they are always are going to cross the barrier and attach to your DNA. So these little babies that are having these multiple seizures a day, it's a it's really about the fiber for them and kind of pulling down that adrenaline response to help the seizures. The fiber and then getting rid of all the triggers. Yeah. Which right. are the sugars and fruits and the right. perfumes and the it's, it's key piece. Yes. So if you I, I did have another question about bile. So one of the 
concerns people have with eating a lot of beans if they're if they are needing to you know rebalance hormones or is that they're like well what if I run out of bile? Oh, you will never run out of bile. <laughs> you never run out of bile. Your your liver is so capable; it will make new bile all day long. It actually wants to because then it pulls the triglycerides out of the bloodstream to make the bile. Your liver is extremely capable. Why do we? Why do we recycle it in the first place? Because when I look at a structure like that, and and I am not a scientist, as we know, I am a coach and a holistic nutritionist, but why why would the body do this recycling? Like, what would be the purpose for the body to recycle at this rate, like at 95%? It's because we're conservative. What if we didn't have, what if we were not eating? You know, what if we were starving? You know, you have to recycle. You have to make do with what you have. Okay. So you said we're set up with a system that always, because we're our systems are, I'll say that they're set. I mean, they respond to different variables, but I mean, our systems are set. We function a certain way. That's why doctors can say, well, we know if you, you know, that bile is recycled and it goes from the gastrointestinal tract back through the liver, through the portal vein. And we, we can follow these things because it's a set. It's not a cycle. It's a pattern. It's just the way we're made. It's just your hair grows. Well, why does your hair grow? Can we stop your hair from growing? You know, why do your teeth, why do we have tooth buds and then your teeth, you know, and we have the growth hormone and it is, it is a way that God made us where mm -hmm. we are set so that we can exist in difficult situations so that we can continue to function. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is just understand that this is the way we function and just eat accordingly. And we had for so many years, Unique, it's just been, has it been the last hundred years? more than a little bit more than 100 that we have really started to eat sugar i mean our populations didn't eat sugar and the ones who ate a lot of fruit if you look at the tropical populations who just lived on fruit they died usually very very young so because they love the fruit sugars but then when you get more into the the temperate zones you know in the where like we live in the united states is now tropics then, you know, we didn't have those, you know, you don't step outside your door and you got bananas hanging on a tree, you know, you don't have all that fruit, you know, and so we'd have to actually cultivate it. Maybe you had some wild persimmons or something, you know, you cultivate these or a wild crab apple tree or something, wild, wild berries, but everybody knows they're, they're not so sweet. <laughs> no, they're bitter and fibrous. And they're if they're you, yeah. If you, if you eat, when I was growing up in Big Sur, we would find wild strawberries and you eat them. And first of all, they're tiny. They're not these big things that we have in the market. They're tiny and they're kind of sweet, but they're mostly kind of a bitter sour. And we loved them as kids. You know, when we found them, they were just like these little juicy morsels because I was raised without sugar. So, you know, when we found those little treats, it didn't matter that it was kind of tart. It was like, oh, that's so good. And wild blueberries and wild blackberries were always really tart. They were seldom sweet. They were more tart than they were sweet. So I try to tell my clients that the fruit that you have in the markets today isn't the fruit that our ancestors were foraging for. It's a very different beast. It's very different altogether. And yeah. so in the worst fruit, you know, people say, well, in the Bible, it says that, you know, there's all this fruit. It's like, well, if you look at what they were calling fruit, they were cucumbers, leeks, onions. And so we have a different terminology for, you know, for things that 
were called fruit back then and what we call fruit now. Yeah, fruit now has been cultivated for the taste buds. So people who are underproducers always worry about being on beans. What are your, what's your comment? Oh, yeah. they definitely need to be on beans. They should be eating beans three times a day because they have a liver and they have toxic waste and has to be pulled and thrown away. And so if you want to produce more hormones, so you have to give us the raw ingredients to do that. And that is your essential fatty acids. The good fats, not the bad fats. So you just put those in. In between, you eat your beans at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then you have your nuts, which are essential fatty acids, or you have your avocados or your olives. Those are all good oils. And you have that mid-morning, mid-afternoon before you go to bed. It's really easy to get in. That's that's what I've said. There's there's always a lot of worry around. And, and honestly, in the years that I've been practicing, I haven't met a lot of real underproducers because you can be overproducing one hormone and suppressing another hormone. And it's not so much that you're underproducing that other hormone, you're just, it's just being suppressed by cortisol or something else. Like there's, there's, it's a bigger conversation than just progesterone being too low. So, okay. So best practices for menopause. Well, you think that I would say beans or eat protein or something, the best practice for menopause, you must rest and you must get out of the stressful situations. You've got to change your stress levels so they're not so high. That is the most important thing in menopause. Hmm. Oh, yes, it, you should be eating well too, but the big thing is stop doing your two mile uh, day walk. You know, but I, you know, I, it's supposed to be good for my heart and you know, all the rest of it is just like, you're going to have a lot of hot flashes after you do that, I guarantee you. So, well, that's another thing that in the world of health, everybody talks about muscle, like you need to put on muscle to maintain healthy bones and, you know, to walk for a healthy heart, resistant train. So you feel like all of that's still too much if you're going through menopause. It's too much. If you're going through menopause, your body cannot make the needed hormones. It's the adrenal glands that are going to have to pick up the production of estrogen during your menopause. And your adrenal glands are exhausted and tired because you put them through the the ringer, you know, in your 50 years of eating and doing your stressful life or whatever you were doing. And so when the ovaries say, hey, I can't produce the estrogen for you anymore, lady, you're going to have to go without. Well, who's going to step up? You have to have estrogen to remain a woman. Who's going to produce that estrogen for you? It's a different, we have different types of estrogen, but it's still an estrogen that will keep you a woman. And who, who produces that? What gland produces that? The ovaries are shriveled up. They're like the size of a nice plump almond, and then they shrivel up to like a dried up, tiny little dried up raisin. It's all wrinkly and pruny looking and tiny, and it doesn't produce estrogen anymore. So where are you going to get this? From your adrenal glands. But if mm -hmm. your adrenal glands are exhausted, they're going to say, are you kidding? You want me to make estrogen on top of all the other stress hormones that you want me to make? Drop dead, lady. You can just have hot flashes and have your meltdown, crying spells and depression and your migraine headaches and all the stuff that comes with menopause. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. But you're very honest and you're very passionate. I love that about you. <laughs> would you say, because I know you eat a cup and a half of nuts every day, would you say that would contribute to a healthier hormone? You know, the other thing, though, is you're a woman on fire in menopause. You're doing so much, but it doesn't I mean, bother. It doesn't like you're not stressed out by it. No, no, I'm not stressed out by any of it. No, no, not at all. It's important that we all have good fatty acids, but I'm eating that cup and half, not because I'm 64 and I went through menopause, you know, a decade ago. 
It's because I want to slow the aging process because that's what the good fats do. So I'm 64. You're looking at me. I'm 64. And I don't dye my hair. I don't wear makeup. You're just looking at me just the odd natural, you know. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Okay. And, so, and I'm not opposed to people. I mean, if you want to dye your hair, that's fine. You want to wear makeup, that's fine. But I don't have time for that. I got so many things to do in my life. I don't have time for that. And I want you to watch me age. I want you to watch me age. See what I look like when I'm 74 and when I'm 84 and 94 and 104 and 114. And so, but that's the reason I'm eating those oils. You could eat just a regular amount of oils in menopause and you will be fine. But what the real issue is, it's not how many fats you're getting, it's that you have not rested your adrenal glands. They're exhausted. And how do you rest them? By getting out there and exercising? No, that puts more other stress on them. You rest, stay home, read a book, watch a good movie, you know. Take it easy. Put your feet up. And you'll say, well, I'm lazy and I have to have this muscle mass. You have muscle mass to do everything in your life that you do. How mm. do I know that? Because you're starting loads of laundry. You're doing the dishes. You're raking the yard. You're whatever you do. You develop muscles to do what you do. And if I you just say, well, I have to be at the gym and I'm going to pump, you know, weights, you know, today. And you're going to develop all these biceps and triceps. And well, if, if, Okay, but the only they'll go away as soon as you stop lifting the weights. But see, now I've got some. Well, you can't see because I got this big sweater on. But I have got some some biceps that you wouldn't believe. Why do I have such large biceps? Because I lift very heavy grandchildren. I love my grandchildren, and they are they are very thirty and forty pounds, you know. And, but they want Mimi to hold them, and of course, Mimi's got to lift them up and pick them up. I'm that's what I call myself. You know, it's a southern way of calling yourself grandma. But it's because I've developed wonderful biceps because of lifting children. And you, any mother that has twins or small children, believe me, they're going to have muscles to do what they do. Well, also, you eat the appropriate amount of food information for your body. So you're not having to work out the excess, right? Like you're, you're yeah. eating in, in relationship to what your body needs. So there's that as well, right? So if you're oh, if you're eating more calories, I mean, I guess there's this is a whole conversation that we don't need to get into, but I did want to ask a question about people with no gallbladder. What happens to all that bile that's recirculating cuz it doesn't have a little holding tank anymore? It doesn't have a holding tank, no. It drips directly and it does even with those people who have a gallbladder, it drips directly from your liver into the duodenum. There is a duct that carries it, but it drips. It's never released in large quantities. See, the gallbladder is a storage facility. It's a bladder. That's what we used to call things. It's a bladder. It's holding something. And then when you eat a meal that has fat in it, it literally will go through peristalsis. It's a contraction, a smooth muscle contraction, and it doesn't drip bile into your duodenum. It squirts it. I mean, you can get a quarter cup of bile in just moments, whereas if you were to get a quarter cup of bile coming down from the liver, it goes drip, drip, that slowly. So it takes a long time to get a quarter cup. So you never quite have enough bile to eat these large fatty meals because bile is a dual purpose. It's not only the trash torque for the liver, but it also is the digestive uh, enzyme to break down the fats that you're eating. So if you eat a lot of fat and you don't have a gallbladder, oh, you're going to hurt, you're going to feel it, you're going to feel it, you're going to feel it. Because <laughs> you won't have that big release of bile. But and you still get rid of your bile, it just comes out much more slowly. And I feel like gallbladders are removed like they're a tic-tac. And I meet a lot of people with no gallbladder. And I'm like, what happened? They're like, well, they couldn't figure it out. And I was in pain, so they took it out. And I'm like, ugh. Same way with tonsils. Oh, we don't know. We just take everybody's tonsils out, you know. 
But now it's rare for you to have your tonsils because now we know that they're important. Yeah, that little thing. So somebody asked, does Karen take any probiotics or vitamins? I take no vitamins. I take no pro probiotics. I take no pills at all. Not even acetaminophen or, you know, because I never have a headache. I'm never sick. I never take anything. I just eat food and my only beverage is water. So what, are your, what are your thoughts on the H. pylori infection? Well, H. pylori infection, I mean, you have to be eating to get to that place. And, you know, it's just like C. diff. And, and C. diff, if you take a lot of antibiotics, you have a history of taking antibiotics, then you have a tendency that you're going to fall prey to these gastrointestinal infections like H. pylori or specifically C. diff. That's a, another type of infection that people, it's a really nasty piece. But anyway, and then you take more antibiotics for those infections, which just create a vicious circle. It's always a vicious circle. So if you have H. pylori, what should you do? Well, what you do is please stop feeding the infection because all these infections, they thrive on sugar. So the more sugar you eat, that's the easiest fuel. It is the fastest burning, easiest fuel to access for all cells. And so you're feeding these little buggers, you know, a diet of sugar. It's like, stop that. Start eating soluble fiber. It actually clears up quite easily. I mean, IH pylori is not a difficult infection to clear up because you just clean up your diet, get rid of your fruit, get rid of your sugar, don't do your caffeine and eat your soluble fiber. All so. right. I'm going to, I'll have two more questions and then we can wrap it up. Thank you so much, by the way. The blood type diet. Have you heard of it where people eat to their blood type? Well, yes, Peter D'Amelo is the one who's written the, a whole series of books. And then there's people after he wrote the first grouping, and then there's been people after that. I do not agree with the blood type diet at all. It is based a lot on hypotheses without any necessary backing. There's a lot of associations. You need to understand associations are not necessarily a scientific correlation. A correlation is that A, or you, you have A and B. B happens because A. That's a correlation. Those are dependent variables. And so we're, we're, we're set, those books are set up like there's these dependent variables. If this happens, this will always happen. These are, these are observations that they are making and they're from the observations they're making associations. And that is not scientific data at all. And so, and so why can I, am I throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Oh no, I have, I have all those books sitting on my library shelf. I've read them all, you know. But I, I, I take issue with them because I am I have my clientele is over fifty thousand people right now. And I don't do the blood type diet. It doesn't matter if you're A, you're B, or you're O, or you're in the negative and positive doesn't come in here. The RH factor is totally separate. It doesn't matter. We're still all eating the same and we all get better. So how is it that you know the blood type diet, you know, is doesn't apply if we're all eating the same? And I say the same, we're getting our proteins. We're getting the right amount of carb complex carbohydrates and, we're, and we have a soluble fiber there and we're getting uh, some of our good fats and we drink water. Well, we'll get well because we're all basically the same system. Our DNA, I mean, we all, no matter, we all have the same liver, our liver functions the same way, our kidneys function the same way. These are things that are inherent in the DNA, that they never change. They're consistent in the DNA. Thank you. Okay, the last one is is that people are scared of eggs because they say that they feed viruses. Have you heard this? Oh, yes. No, they don't feed viruses. What feed viruses is sugar and fruit feed viruses because they give them the fuel that they need to have. It's because they, it's because they don't know. They have to understand that viruses are an RNA strand, and sometimes they're a double strand. RNA is like the, the 
it's not DNA. DNA is a little bit different. RNA is like the, it is what's instructing a protein molecule to be made without a DNA component. And so because we can take and we can do retroviruses, we can go backwards from an RNA into a DNA. That's what people, what they have is they have a little bit of genetic hearsay that they're hearing and they don't fully study, okay, what is going to happen if you had an egg protein? Because egg is a protein. And all, all of our viruses are proteins. They're all proteins. I mean, everything that we have is out of our protein. But just the eggs are, if they're scared of eating eggs, well, then don't. But it's, it's, it's faulty. It's not faulty science. It's just incomplete science. We don't have, this is the thing I run into all my life, everywhere. We have incomplete knowledge. And even when we have, we bring in all the knowledge that we do have, we don't have enough because we're, we just haven't discovered it yet. But we do have a huge body of information and we don't bring in all the pieces. We just pick, we cherry pick. And so this whole eggs causing viral, you know, we're gonna give you viral infections and create problems. This cherry picking information from genetics and you're not covering all the information because as soon as you do, you go, oh, that's debunked. That's not true, so. Thank you. I appreciate you so much, Karen. And again, every time I see you, every time I talk to you, I will say thank you for changing the course of my life. And I work with a lot of people who are just benefiting from you and your protocols and your discovery of soluble fiber and interrupting that enterohepatic recirculation. Yes. And, you know, gut autoimmune is, is tricky and it's an interesting one in the world. And maybe next time we can talk more about autoimmune and, and all of that big conversation. But I have a great gut every day and it's it's thanks to you and this wonderful protocol. So thank you. Oh, I'm so glad, Unique. And now you're helping others. This is perfect. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with Karen. As always, it is a pleasure to have her on and her wisdom and insight continue to surprise, amaze, and delight me. And I hope it does you as well. I will be running along with my e-course. I'll be offering group coaching starting up again in July. If you are interested in group coaching, please sign up for my newsletter and you will be the first to know about the sign up for the next round of group coaching. It's been incredible. I have to say that I've never been much into the whole group thing, thinking and feeling that one-on-one was definitely the best, but what I realized was something like the Bean Protocol because it is such a fringe conversation that being able to put a group of people together who are working on their health, who are dedicated, who are supporting each other has been incredibly empowering and powerful, not only to be a part of, but to witness in the group how everybody's supporting each other, getting through the hard times, the withdrawals, and riding those incredible waves of healing. So I am really excited. Who knew? But this is really amazing. Anyway, I hope you guys have a wonderful day, night, morning, wherever you are in the world, and I will see you next time.